um, that we at the 11th hour came to you for salvation and you granted it to us. And we thank you, Lord, for that mercy. We pray, Father, that you would help us not only to be receivers of that grace, but that we would also be the vessels of that grace to others. Help us to learn how to speak the truth and love well and to help our brothers and sisters through their sanctification process as you have allowed us to do that by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. So today's subject is getting to know people, which is chapter 9 of the Instruments of the Redeemer's Hands book. Uh, I know some of you have picked it up and have read some of it, and I encourage you all. I think this is an excellent book, and, and we get to just kind of review it in more of a cursory summary way, but it is really a fantastic resource to use. So um, he has been, Paul David Tripp has been walking us through, thank you, Sean, has been walking us through a, a paradigm uh, or a, a method of biblical counseling, and he's broken it down into four words, love, no speak do love no speak do and we finished the love section some very good takeaways from that section in terms of uh, our, our counseling needs to come from a place of love a place of compassion uh, a love that enters into the world of somebody else a love that uh, that can relate to their suffering right and so now we're moving on to this next section of no and it is absolutely important that you know your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do you think, by the way, why do you think that it is critical? Why do you think it's so important to truly know your brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm sorry. Oh, yes, there are handouts. I just don't have them. So sorry about that. Um, but let's do this. Do you want some paper? I can have someone grab some paper. Okay. My apologies. Yes, there are usually handouts. I just forgot to print them out. But I'll try to keep you following along as best as I can. No, no worries. Yeah, the question is, why is it so important to really, truly know your brothers and sisters in Christ? Emmy. Um, it's written to bear one another's burdens mm -hmm. and so fulfill the love of Christ. And so if we only have superficial relationships, we can only superficially bear each other's burdens. Right, great. So we're called to bear one another's burdens, Emmy says. And, and if we only know each other's burdens superficially, then that's as far as we're going to be able to bear each other's burdens. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah. We're Louise. We're exhort people as long as it is today mm -hmm. and to confront them and confess our sins to one another. Amen. And you won't do that with somebody you don't know. Yeah. So you're supposed to exhort each other as long as it's called today, uh, every single day. Uh, and we need each other's exhortation and encouragement to make it to the very end. And if you don't know each other very well, then you may not actually do that. Emmy, and then come to you. Yes. Do you want me to make those copies for you? Yeah, uh, it'd be challenging to get them to you in order to, because I don't have it. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, what's your name, sir? Irvin. Irvin, yes. Yeah, Irvin's question, what does it mean to bear each other's burdens? It, just in, in, in essence, going through this life, we go through a lot of difficulty, and we just carry that with each other. So if someone's going through great suffering or even uh, struggling with sin, that we help carry that with them. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll try to unpack that later if you, if you have more questions on that. Good. So we need to really know our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may have an example in your mind where you really thought you knew someone, and then you found out that you didn't. 
Yeah, and this is a common experience with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the, the reality that we, that we come to is that a lot of times in churches, especially maybe, maybe we'll say Western churches because it's part of American culture, uh, we have these kinds of shallow relationships with each other at church. And some of the most important and intimate aspects of our lives just kind of fly under the radar. And sometimes we actually prefer that, right? We don't want people in our business. Uh, and so th- that, that's really something that we need to actually break through if, if it's true that we need each other's help on this. Which brings us to our first point in the outline that you don't physically have, but you can follow it along if you're taking notes somewhere. And the first thing we're gonna look at is breaking through the casual. Breaking through the casual. Think about why having merely casual relationships within our church family is so dangerous. Talk to us about that. Uh, Why is it so dangerous to have merely casual relationships in our church family. Yeah, Eloise. You aren't going to truly know somebody. You're not going to let somebody truly know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, things can sneak up, and um, all of a sudden a catastrophe can happen that has been brewing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you can't help out with that if you don't truly know somebody. Yeah, so you can't know someone, you, and you're not letting yourself be known by someone. And Eloise says that uh, that catastrophe will just happen and you just won't be prepared to help them because you had no idea that was even brewing up in their lives. Uh, I'll give you the example he gives in the book before I go to you, Greg. Uh, basically, one, a couple of his members back when he was a pastor or maybe is still a pastor, uh, his, the husband of the couple comes to him and, and basically reveals to him that for the last few years, he and his wife have been physically fighting each other. Like, he's hitting her so hard that she has to like uh, not show herself for a week. She's hitting him so hard that he's got to lie and say this was just from home improvement. And Paul David Tripp as a pastor is so shocked that how could this even be possible? I know these people. They're members of my church. We've walked together for years. And that really was an eye-opening thing for him was like, we need to really get to know each other, right? Greg, what were you going to say, brother? Okay, right on. Um, so yes, it's very dangerous to have just casual relationships with our church family. Uh, sometimes knowing facts about each other, we feel like we know each other because we know facts about each other, right? Like, you know that I used to work at Wells Fargo. You know that my daughter's name is Elora, and you have these facts compiled about me. You might feel like you really, really know me that might keep you from actually asking me more questions to really get to know me in a deep way where you can help me through my, my burdens. So we gotta think through how we can overcome that challenge, right? So what do you think? How can you avoid being a, what he calls a co-conspirator in casual relationships? How can you avoid that? Yeah, Sheila, and then Eloise. This is probably the hardest thing a person has to do, but one thing is to learn that it's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. Mm, true. So A, she says it's okay to be vulnerable, even though that's very difficult for us. And B, there may be consequences to our being vulnerable, but God has already ordained those also. So be at peace with whatever it costs you to be vulnerable. Good call. Eloise? 
Same. All right, Greg. It was my experience at my church in Indiana in our men's group that men in particular have trouble admitting their vulnerabilities. Mm. Uh, there is no upside in their, in their life outside of the church. You, you appear weak or vulnerable at work. You don't get promoted. Mm-hmm. You have to you deal with someone who's aggressive in their, their uh, style of relationships. They'll put you under the, their thumb. Mm-hmm. So it is that many men just don't speak up at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and that was prob- probably, I, w- I would say that as years went by, the, the, the ability to be vulnerable in that classroom setting, to be able to talk about the problems that they were facing, was something that we treasured. Mm. Because we, we, there's no way we would talk about it outside of that room. Yeah. Very good. So he shared that. Uh, that culturally men sometimes will not open up because it's like looked down upon for you to be weak and and need help um and so sometimes men just will not share what's going on because they don't want to appear weak sometimes there's consequences to that where your your perception is you're not going to get promoted if you're considered a weak person um so yeah I, i think there's definitely some truth to that you know sometimes too it's kind of like when when we get guys together to confess sins and pray, it's always just like the stuff that they know everyone else is going through as well, right? Yeah, all guys, we all struggle with sin A, sin B, and sin C. So let me go ahead and just share that as opposed to the really deep, dark struggle that I'm going through, right? So yeah, we want to avoid that by, by being vulnerable, by actually being open, and you're leading by example. So if you are in a prayer meeting and you share something, hopefully that will encourage others to kind of do the same thing, hopefully, uh, but to also like be committed. I'm, I'm not just going to have shallow relationships with my church family. They are my family. The other thing too is that you're a person who needs help. We acknowledge that over the last several weeks, every single one of us is someone who needs help. And the people whom God is using to help you is your church family. So if you don't tell people or reveal where you need help, then that's going to prevent you from actually getting the help that you need. And then furthermore, uh, we can't obey the commands in scripture unless we really know each other. Eloise kind of hinted at this, but think about all of the one another commands of uh, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other that you may be healed, encourage one another. Uh, What are some other one another's that come to mind? Yeah, Chris. Forgive one another. Keenan. love one another. Pray for each other. Yeah, what are you praying for for that person? You got these general prayers, which, I mean, they're not useless, but we also need prayer for more specific things. So we recognize that, that if we're going to obey the commands of Scripture, then we have to really know each other. And Christ is the one who exemplifies this for us. Take a look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Here's what the word of God says there. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
So let's work a little backwards. Verse 16 is our encouragement that when, when we need help, we need to go to the throne of Jesus Christ. And it's promised that if, if and when we go to the throne of Jesus Christ, he's going to give us mercy. He's going to give us grace that we need for the moment. And the reason that we should have confidence to be able to do that is in verse 15. We don't, do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Or if you remove the double negative, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? And by the way, the word sympathize here for in the Greek, sympathize in us has a, in English has a connotation of like, aw, that's the kind of, that's as far as sympathize goes. Oh, I feel bad. But sympathize is more like, um, I feel because um, like you feel. I, I feel like you feel. Like I, I'm with you on what you're feeling, right? Not in our sin, but in like, if he commands us to weep with those who weep, he weeps with us when we weep, as an example, right? And the reason that's given here of why he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, well, will you tell me? How is Jesus able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Yeah. Yeah, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. So Jesus lived a human life, and in that human life, he, he faced all the temptations that we face except for the temptations we face within. He didn't have a sinful nature, therefore he didn't have the flesh that is warring, that's telling him do this, and he's, he doesn't have that. But he has all of the external things. What are some things that you can think of that, G- that Jesus would have been tempted by from the outside? Yeah, Emmy. Satan in the wilderness? Yeah, so the devil, right? Takes him to the wilderness and tempts him. Uh, quotes scripture to him, incorrectly, and that's a temptation. What else did he get tempted by? And when I say tempted, I'm not saying like he felt like doing it. I'm saying that there are external impetuses, impeti, whatever, um, that that otherwise would make us potentially want to sin. What are those? Yeah. I'm sure after all day of uh, of, uh, serving people, he wanted to just rest and went into the wilderness and prayed. So I'm sure it was tempting Amen. So uh, who here is ever tempted to like not be in the word or pray when you're really tired? All right. And Jesus, he, he had the same external temptations of exhaustion, but still would go off and spend um, an, undesign- an unnamed amount of time just praying to his father. Right. Good. Um, I mentioned this before, like, right. Uh, we, we all struggle with attraction to other people that we really should not think of that way. Jesus was surrounded by people all the time. So there's that temptation too, but he never sinned, never had an inappropriate thought uh, about anyone else. And yet it's like he still faced all of those temptations, right? Uh, he became able to sympathize with our weaknesses, which again is, is really mind-blowing. And as I was kind of trying to think through this, I'm like, we're dealing here with the hypostatic union. We're dealing here with the Trinity, and I feel like I, I'm very careful. I don't want to fall into some sort of heresy or lead the church into some sort of heresy. This is a difficult subject, right? But Jesus experienced all of these things in life, and he was tempted in every way as we are, which we talked about, and Jesus learned. This is very hard for us to grasp because Jesus is God, and God knows everything, right? 
But there's things, there's descriptions in the Bible of, of how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus is the all-wise God. How does the all-wise God grow in wisdom? And the answer to that is it's in his humanity. It's, it's in his human nature that he grew in wisdom, and he grew in knowledge of what it's like to be human. Now, does God, being omnipotent, already know what it's like to be human? Yeah, because he, he is the creator, right? He also knows what it's like to be um, an anteater. Not experientially, but he created anteaters, and he knows everything about them, and he knows everything they go through. So in that way, he knows what it's like to be an anteater. But when it comes to the incarnation, God becomes flesh, and in the flesh learns and grows and um, memorizes scripture. Like he didn't just come memorizing all of scripture. He grew up doing that. Um, he, 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 in his life then, as he is experiencing humanity, he is experiencing what we're going through. And in that sense, in his humanity, is experientially learning what it's like to be human. Does that make sense? Have I fallen in a, off a cliff here? Help me if I have. Uh, yes. Amen. Not necessarily for him, because he was all-knowing anyway, but he did that for us. Very good point. Eloise said that he experienced that humanity for us, right? He, he experienced that so that he would live the life that we couldn't live. And there couldn't be any excuse. We're like, well, okay, yeah, but he is deity, right? No, he was really also truly human and went truly through human experiences, including being tempted in every way as we are. And another way, so we often think of Jesus living that life simply so that he can be our perfect substitute. And that is a supreme reason that he did that. But what's the reason that's given here for why he lived the, the perfect human life as well? What's the reason given in verse 15? I don't know, I'm not there, but that's also true, amen? <laughs> Hebrews 4.15, yeah. Yeah, to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So he, part of being tempted in every way as we are yet without sin is A, so that he could be our perfect sacrifice, but B, so that he would be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yep. The scripture that always uh, uh, puzzled me and fascinated me was he learned obedience through suffering. Yeah, that's right. Here's God who, I mean, he was obedient. He's God, but yet he learned obedience through suffering. Amen. It, that's also in Hebrews uh, where it says that, that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So again, in his humanity, Jesus learned. Uh, there are certain things that he is expressed in the Bible as having not known. Uh, where, where, for example, he says, who touched me? And some people say, well, that's just rhetorical. But that he's actually looking around to see who did it, right? And then also it says that he doesn't know, he didn't know uh, when the Son of Man's return would be, right? So in his humanity, he knew what was revealed to him by the Spirit or by his Father. But in his humanity, just like us, he had to grow. He had to learn, um, which actually makes all of those, the, his, his obedience that much greater for us. That the temptation that Satan was lobbing against him was real, right? And that he overcame it because he is the perfect Son of Man and the perfect Son of God, right? So we can learn from this example in that God came to dwell with us, to know us in a way 
where he, as our human mediator and advocate, could truly know what we go through. And so this should be our desire as well, to truly know what our brothers and sisters are going through. You see, there's a problem of assumptions, which is our next bullet point in the outline you don't have. The problem of assumptions. The problem of assumptions. What is the problem of making assumptions? Don't give, don't give that first answer that comes to your head. Give the Sunday school answer. What is the problem of making assumptions? You could be wrong. Yeah, you could be wrong about that. And what happens if you're wrong about making assumptions? What's the impact of that? Yeah, you could end up slandering someone, gossiping. You may even, even if you don't tell anyone else, you're, you have now an incorrect, inaccurate thought of someone else in your head. You may be judging them for something that's not even true or right. Good. So uh, making assumptions is problematic. It also will make you not able to really help someone if you think you're trying to help them with something that you've wrongly assumed, okay? So one of the reasons, there's two reasons that he gives for, for why we make assumptions. And the first one is a theological reason. And Tripp says that, you know, we have the Bible and we have so much about man in here. It, God tells us so much about ourselves, right? That, that sometimes we think, well, there's nothing else I need to know. I have, I have enough here, right? But why is knowing what the Bible says about humans in general not really enough to know the person that's sitting in front of you? Yeah, Louise. Our hearts are deceptive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So our hearts are deceptive, their hearts are deceptive. We can't assume that because A and B are true, then C must be true as well. Good. Other thoughts? Why is it that, that you need to know more about the person in front of you than simply just what the Bible says about him or her? Marty? There's such variety in struggles we go through. Yeah. We don't all have the same struggles. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't all have the same struggles. Not only do we not all have the same struggles, but we don't always all react to the struggles the same way as each other. So someone who goes through a trial, they may naturally be bent. This is my personality. I don't get anxious very much. Uh, And so maybe I'll assume that if my wife is going through the same thing, she will not get anxious either. But we're very different people, right? So I shouldn't assume that just because the Bible says we ought not to be anxious, that all Christians won't be anxious, right? Good. So that's the, the theological challenge of our uh, making assumptions. And the other one is, our, is an ex- experiential reason. So beyond theology, um, we might think that because we go through similar situations, that they are identical situations. You know, for example, we might think you know, we're all here, we're all in the same city. Um, we all have the same theological bent. We have a high view of God's sovereignty and therefore what they're going through is probably the same thing that I went through. Um, and, uh, one thing that comes to mind, Ariel and Cortland got married very close to us in terms of time. It would be foolish of me to think that we go through the same identical circumstances in our marriage or that because Megan and I aren't struggling that they may not be either. I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying that it would be foolish of me to make that assumption, right? 
So we should be very careful not to make assumptions, um, and we should instead make sure that your conclusions are correct. That's the next section. Making sure your conclusions are correct. And he gives three strategies for how you can make sure that your conclusions are correct. The first one is to ask your, the person you're helping, your counselee, your brother or sister in Christ, whatever the case might be, ask them to define their terms. Why might that be important, to ask them to define their terms? Yeah, Mr. Pope. Definitely. So he said the same words can mean entirely different things to different people. Marty. Same idea, right? So the example he gives in the book is you're, somebody comes to you and says, my husband and I got into a huge fight. That could mean a lot of things. That could mean like the early example in the book. They physically fought each other for years. It could just mean they had a shouting match. It could mean neither, that they didn't shout or fight, but they were just in disagreement, right? So you need to ask your counselee, oh, what, what do you mean by that? Share more about what you mean by a big fight. Um, what's another example of terms that people might use that has a range of meanings that you should probably narrow down? Yeah, Michael. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Yeah, so what's the word in that? The word that you need to clarify on? Uh, what do you mean when you say that somebody was mean? Was mean, mistreated rude, mistreated you. Good, good. Um, someone might say, in love. Well, what does that mean? Like, that could mean you're infatuated. That could mean a bunch of different things. You, sh- you want to find that out as well. Or I'm feeling bummed. That could be like they're just feeling sad a little bit. Or that could be that that clinicians would call it depression, right? So it's just like, we need to ask a little bit more, share more about what you mean by that. Another thing that the second one, so the first one is ask them to define their terms. The second one is to ask them to give you an example, a real life example of what they're talking about. So for, so he says in the book that um, asking them to define their terms would be like asking them for the dictionary definition. And then asking them for the real life example would be like ask them to play back a tape for you. So, oh, uh, you had a huge fight. Walk me through that. What happened? Who said what? Um, when did they say it? In what way did they say it? So this will help you to kind of get a better picture of what they're talking about. Um, that way, again, if it's huge fight means shouting match, you still don't know what they were shouting about. You don't know uh, what was their heart behind it. And then, again, the third reason, the third, I'm sorry, the third method of making sure your conclusions are correct is to ask them why they responded the way they did in the example. So, you know, let's say they had a, they had a huge fight, and, um, and yeah, so she said this, and I slammed my fist on the dining table, and, okay, what, what, why? What was your thinking behind that? Because at that point, you still don't know what was their motivation, what was their heart behind slamming their hand on the table. Was it simply that they were frustrated, or was it perhaps that they thought that slamming their hand on the table would just cut the conversation off, right? So you have to know these things. Making sure your conclusions are correct. Again, let me just briefly run through those three. Uh, The first one is to ask them to define their terms. The second one is to ask them to give a specific real-life example of what they're talking about. 
And then the last one is ask them why. Try to get to the heart of why they did what they did. And what could happen if you don't take those steps in that conversation? What could happen? Yeah, you got a totally messed up view of what is actually going on. Then you may, what's that? It's like looking at a map. Yeah, tell me more. Has incom- you know, there's, there's incomplete, uh, there are no labels on the roads. There are blanks across wide open spaces that how do you get from here to there? And e- easy to do if you make assumptions. Right, yeah, so he said uh, it's like a map. Like if, if it's missing labels, if it's missing street names, then you may end up in a completely different place, which is very easy to do if you just make assumptions. Oh, this, this runs north. That probably goes to Reno. Well, maybe. Maybe it's a map of Texas, right? <laughs> so uh, you got to be, yeah, it's a good analogy there, Greg. Good. So the importance of asking good questions. That's the next section. The importance of asking good questions. Why is it important that you ask good questions of the person that you're helping? Good. So you know how to help them. You know what to do in that situation. Right on. Yeah, Emmy. It shows them that you're actually listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shows them that you're actually listening. That's a good one. Like, what if you took your car to the mechanic and they didn't ask you any questions? They're just like, all right, we got it. And they, so they have no idea what, what, what they're actually trying to fix. And they may just replace your engine when what you really needed was uh, oil. Right, so, so asking, if we might do the same thing as well. You know, if someone comes to us with a general problem, we don't ask questions. We don't really know how to actually help their current situation. The other thing, the other reason why asking good questions is important is because the questions themselves, if they're good questions, can actually minister to the person just from asking the question, right? How, how is that the case? How can asking good questions actually minister to the people just with a question itself? Mm-hmm. You're, actually, you're actually seeking information to understand where their heart is, where their circumstances are. All the, all the things that people tend to keep hidden for all the variety of, of, of personal reasons of not wanting to, as I stated earlier, look weak or look uh, incompetent or any of the things that make us resist being honest in our disclosures about where we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Julian and then Irvin. Irvin or Irwin? Irvin. Irvin. Julian. Yeah, so the questions that you ask could show the person you're trying to point them back to the Lord, which is the essence of, of any kind of personal ministry. Is that basically what you're saying? Good. Irvin. Um, I think a lot of times when we are going through certain things, and uh, I think we get stuck in um, thinking so much about the problem. And when somebody asks us a, I guess, 
themselves. Mm. Uh, maybe that question could have been something that um, helped that person that's going through something to start thinking about um, a solution or like you. Mm, good one. Good. So Irvin said that asking good questions can help them get into a problem-solving mode rather than just like a venting mode, right? So it's like challenging them, okay, let's actually get to the bottom of this rather than just being upset. Court. And then... Yeah, it can get you thinking about something you hadn't thought about. Bonnie, did you raise your hand or were you just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you said that sometimes asking good questions in the process of answering will help you to kind of think through the situation, right? It reminds me of Nathan. Was it Nathan who called David out? Dave, the question he asked was, hey, what do you think should be done to this guy? <laughs> and then he still didn't get it right away. But then when he said, hey, King David, you are that man then suddenly all that processing that he just did with that parable that Nathan told hit him in the heart. So that was a very good question that, that Nathan asked. Hey, what do you think should be done with this guy? So this begs the question, no pun intended, of what are good questions, right? So let's take a look at that, our final second to last a topic. Now for some good questions. Now for some good questions. He gives four qualities of good questions that you can ask people. If you're interested in counseling people, think about this from a counseling setting. But again, this is just everyday, day-to-day personal ministry between brothers and sisters in Christ. And he gives four qualities of good questions. And the first one he gives are open-ended questions. Open-ended questions are essentially questions that can't be answered with yes or no. Usually they start with who, what, when, where, why, or how. Uh, the closed-ended questions are going to be do you or are you, right? So open-ended questions are helpful because it'll help you to avoid assumptions. It'll help you to actually have them think through it and give you a full answer that they have thought through, not so much just a yes or no. Uh, closed-ended questions can be helpful for certain things. Um, like, I don't know, have, have you, are you on any kind of medication right now would be a helpful question. Um, they say no, okay, then you can move on. Um, but there are certain things that you need to ask open-ended questions. So let's brainstorm some of those. What are some examples of open-ended questions that can't be answered by yes or no that you might ask somebody when they come to you with a problem? What are some open-ended questions? Uh, actually, let me make this easier by narrowing it down to a scenario. So let's just say that... Um, I'm just, I come in and I come to you and I'm just like, I am just so frustrated and exhausted right now. What are some open-ended questions you could ask? What have you been doing to cause you to be frustrated, uh, tired? Yeah, what, what have you been doing that's been causing you to be tired? Did I see your hand up back there? I have to say yes. Oh, same. Okay, good. What are some other open-ended questions you can ask? Ariel. When did this start? When did this start? Good. What else? A couple more. What 
What have you already tried? Nice one. Good. One more. Yeah, Irvin. Yeah, I mean, that's a good What's making you so tired? Or, or why are you so frustrated? What's going on? Tell me more. What's going on in your life? Good. So open-ended questions. You, you can cover a lot just from those questions. So open-ended questions are really good to try to try to get good answers from somebody. The second thing that he says are ask a mix of survey questions and, and focus questions. Ask a mix of survey questions and focus questions. Survey questions uh, are, are less about the specific situation that they're coming to you with and more just trying to understand them as a whole, as a person, to try to understand themes um, in a person's life. So he gives a very good example of of why survey questions would be helpful. Uh, there, there's a, a person A, let's call him Bob, right? Um, he, is, he is a man who loves the respect of other people. And in public, he's just, he's a servant. Like he, he, he'll, do, he'll do anything that you ask him to do. At home, he's a tyrant and he will shout his family down and make them do everything, right? So it seems like, man, that's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Did I get that right? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But in reality, it's the same root issue that they love the respect of people. So he tries to get it from other people by being the servant and trying to like impress people, and he does it at home by being a tyrant. So the, main, the root issue is he has an idol of getting respected. Does this make sense to you? And so asking questions to try to understand the person as a theme will help you rather than just trying to focus on one thing. Um, another one is focused questions. Focused questions are more about the specific situation that they're going through. So the ones you gave, for example, when I just said, man, I'm just so frustrated, I'm so tired. Uh, you're asking focused questions about that particular thing. And it's important, again, that you ask both kinds of questions. Uh, let me ask this, what is the risk of only focusing on this one particular situation? Instead of trying to get to know the person as a, as a whole, looking for themes. Yeah, Eloise. It's not reflective of what's going on. If you just focus on um, what they're doing when they're out in public, and you don't focus on what they're doing at home too, you don't get to the hard issue of I'm demanding respect from other people. You don't get to that. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're only focusing, for example, on just the behavior of what they, how he treats his family, then you're going to miss out on that other larger theme of making an idol of being respected. Good. And we see this like with, with, doctor, with physicians. Uh, let's say that somebody is, is that me? My bad. So let's say that somebody is uh, feeling lethargic um, and, and in that, with that lethargy, very sad, right? What are some potential things that are factoring into the lethargy and the sadness? From a physician's point of view. Yeah. yeah. Um, the person's diet and exercise. Yeah, diet and exercise. Good. What else? Thyroid problems. Thyroid problems. Sleep. Sleep. Medication. Medication. Good. What about from a whole person, not, not a physician's perspective, but um, just like a biblical counselor's perspective. What else could be feeding into that lethargy and sadness? Missed expectations. 
achieved such and such and you didn't. Yeah, missed expectations. Competition. Opposition, Opposition sorry. So yeah, you're getting uh, persecution or just someone just for some reason harassing you. Yeah. Negative thoughts and emotions. Negative thoughts and emotions, good. I was actually going to say, it could also be like laziness. Could be laziness, right on, yeah. So I mean, all of these things, again, we're dealing with the, the focused problem of the lethargy and the sadness. And if you just focus on that, you may miss out on a bunch of other factors that are in this whole situation. Maybe they do need to go to the doctor and get some blood work, right? It, it, it's a reality. We are both body and spirit, and our body affects our spirit. Our spirit affects our body. And so again, it, it's important to focus on the situation, but not only be focused on the situation. The pitfall of only thinking in a broad sense is that you're not also helping with this particular situation that they're going through. So we should ask both kinds of questions. Trip gives a good analogy, a motel analogy. Let's use our education hallway as an example. One, two, one, two. Sorry about that. And sorry, Jeremy, if this does this to you, Pastor Jeremy, when you preach. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's say you're walking down the education hallway, the classes are going on, right? Survey questions would be just kind of peeking in through those windows in each room and uh, just getting a general idea of themes. What's going on in this hallway? Oh, there's classes in each of them. There's a teacher in each of them. There's different age groups in each. Uh, so if you're using this in analogy in a person's life, let's say room A is uh, their diet, room B is their family relationships, room C is their sin, struggles with pride, uh, and so on. So you're getting a general theme of what's going on. Focus questions would be, oh, let me go into one of these rooms in particular and get more details, try to understand more about what's going on in this room. And again, asking both kinds of questions will give you a more well-rounded understanding of the person's situation. Another thing that he says is a, a good way to ask questions. Let me summarize the first two. Open-ended questions, and then a mix of focused and survey questions. And the third one is understanding that different kinds of questions is gonna give you different kinds of information. Different kinds of questions will give you different kinds of information. So it can be helpful as you're talking to somebody of asking yourself, what don't I know? about the situation. What don't I know? And if you're asking yourself that, then you'll know what questions to ask because you're gonna help fill in your gaps about the situation. So let's think through, for example, that guy who says that I had a huge fight with my wife, right? Um, you can ask them several questions. Here are some kinds of questions that we can think through. What, how, why, how often and where, and when? So let's think through this together in this scenario. Someone said, I had a huge fight. Somebody ask a what question. What blank? Emmy. What were you fighting about? What were you fighting about? Good. What else? What's another what question? What made it necessary to fight? What made it necessary to fight? Good. Marty. What led up to this fight? What led up to this? You know what led... Let me answer this. Let me answer these questions so that you can, you can see what this will actually look like. You said, you said, what caused you to fight? No. no. What were you fighting about? What were you fighting about? Yeah, basically, she just got all up in my business about um, how I'm never asking her about her day, right? 
You said what? What made it necessary to fight? Well, she just, it was just completely snarky. It was just completely unnecessary, and I had a long day. This isn't a real scenario, by the way. Don't, don't ask Megan if she's okay. This is not a real scenario. <laughs> Same idea. Okay, good. So those are what questions. Another one would be how questions, right? Ask me some how questions about this. Remember, we had a huge fight. Ricky. How did you feel after you to her? Oh, so let's go Ricky and then Eloise, yeah. How did it start? Um, very good question. How did it start? Yeah, so all of a sudden we're having dinner and she said, okay, well, how was your day? And I knew what she meant by that. She, she's like, why aren't you asking about my day? Yeah, Ariel? How was it resolved? It hasn't, like, that's why I'm coming to you. We're just, we're still haven't been really talking to each other about it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't have flown off the handle just off the bat like that. Good. So those are how questions. Uh, what about why questions? Ask me some why questions. Emmy. Why haven't you been asking her about her day? Ooh, why haven't you been asking her about her day? I just, honestly, I just don't think about it, right? I don't even expect her to ask me about my day. I'm just, it's not that important for me to share my day, so I assume it's not important to her. Good. Yeah. Why do you think God focuses on men loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands? Uh, um, Marty asks, why do you think God focuses on men loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands? I don't know. Maybe because it's just like so hard. Like it's hard for us to like lay down our lives. Go. Yeah, Kara. Why are you assuming your wife doesn't? Uh, want you to ask her about her day. I guess maybe I'm just like assuming that she's like me because I honestly don't care to talk much about my day. Good. Last one on the why. Uh-huh. Why are you assuming you knew what she meant? Um, well, in this case, like I was right because she started to fight me about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Irvin. <laughs> Why don't you feel like sharing your day with her? I'm just a man of few words, you know? I just want to say, good, and that was it. Man, there is, there's a little truth to this scenario, but not the fight part. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, given whatever your reaction to the fight was, uh, because of how you're delivering it, I can't tell. It's like either you, the, the person is super upset about it or kind of dismissive and flippant about it, but annoying. It's like, well, why do you feel the way, why did you react and why are you feeling the way why did I react that way? Just because I knew she was picking a fight with me about this, you know, because the way she asked it and then the stuff she said afterwards. And um, yeah, good. All right. Good why questions. Um, let's ask me some how often and where questions. How often and where? Yeah. How often do you fight about this issue? <sighs> Not very often, like once a week. <laughs> she said, how often do you fight about this issue? Good. Yeah, that's important for you to know. Was this a one-off that, that happened, this is the first time in your, in your marriage, or are you constantly fighting about this? Good. What other how often or where questions? Do you ever, do you ever argue in public? How often or where? Oh, okay. So where, where does this usually happen? Um, usually, honestly, at the dinner table. It's, it's rough. I just got home. I'm, crank, I'm hangry. 
right? And she should understand that. Um, yeah, so good. Uh, what about when questions? Ask, start with when. When do these arguments happen? Usually, she said, when do these arguments happen? Usually, usually after work. Um, I, I know it's not an excuse, but I just, I'm kind of not in a good mood after work. Yeah. When do you two usually come together and reconcile, and who is the initiator? Ooh, nice one. When do you two usually come to reconcile, right? Again, these, it's a ministering question, because what if the answer is, honestly, we just kind of sweep it under the rug, right? So... But, but it's a guilt, not that she's making me feel guilty, but um, that would be, we're like, oh, wow, you know, that's a good point. I usually don't. Neither of us usually reaches out to, like, reconcile. Good. So all of this was to demonstrate the reality that what, how, why, how often, where, and when questions, they all uncover different kinds of detail about the situation. And was all of that information important to help you minister to them? Yeah, I, let's think through that, right? Um, uh, the why. You, you were understanding why I got so frustrated, and my answer was, it's because I knew she was just trying to pick a fight. How could that information help you minister to me? Irvin. Yeah, yeah. What triggers that person? Um, what emotions, what uh, sins they're actually doing when they're reacting in this way? Good. Um, what about the fact that you know that it happens pretty frequently? What does that tell you that you need to be able to address? That there be, there's a issue. That me- Good. Maybe there's a deeper issue. It's not just that you got frustrated one time. It's you, maybe you have an anger issue. Maybe she has an anger issue. And you're it, actually the answer to that is both. We all have anger issues. We all deal with anger and we exhibit them in sinful ways. Uh, and so, but trying to understand what their sinful uh, tendencies are will help you to help them better. And then the fourth one, let's again think through the first three. Ask open-ended questions, ask a mix of focused and survey questions, uh, understand that different kinds of questions will give you different kinds of information. And then the fourth one would be to ask a progressive line of questions. Um, make it so that your questions make sense one after the other. You're not just taking all these questions and just kind of randomly throwing them at me like tomahawks. So in, in, in sales, what they call this is peeling the onion, right? So you ask them with one question, and once you get that piece of information, ask them a follow-up question and so on. Why do you think it would be helpful for you to ask a progressive line of questions rather than just a bunch of random questions? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to the map analogy, you're trying to get to a certain place. You're trying to fill in the gaps of your knowledge, and some of that is just by asking one of, after the other. Yeah, David. Yeah, it helps you understand, helps them understand. Good, right? Yeah, Bonnie. So I have a comment, maybe question. 
Sure. So Bonnie said that uh, in her line of work, which is technical support, yes, um, she she asks sometimes if she asks the wrong questions, they give her a bunch of information that she doesn't need, which makes it harder for her to help them. So what she tries to do is she tries to be in charge of the conversation, and actually that is that's actually a good thing, right? Counselors are directive; they they are we are trying to help them get to a solution, and so the questions that you ask do need to be precise and purposeful. And, and, and logical about why you're trying to go someplace. So that's, that's spot on. And, and that's why we want to get to this logical thing. You know, for example, I'll go to you, Lori, in a second. Emmy's question that she asked me is, uh, when do you usually uh, try to reconcile and who does? And then I ask, honestly, neither. And we just kind of sweep it under the rug. A good question after that was like, and how has that really been working for you guys, right? So it's kind of like, again, it's a stream of logical questions that are that are progressive. Yeah, Lori. Good. Yeah, so that progressive line of Good. So the progressive line of questions helps you to connect dots that that they haven't previously been connecting and it helps you to get to the gospel as well. Let me bring this home court and then I'll come to you for your question afterwards, okay? Uh, so, good questions. Four kinds of four things to remember about asking good questions. Ask open-ended questions. Ask a mix of survey and focus questions. Understand that different types of questions will give you different kinds of information. And then, fourthly, ask a progressive line of questions that are that logically connect to each other. So now, let's think through just really quickly our, our final point: the redemptive importance of good questions the redemptive importance of good questions. If you ask good questions that are purposeful and leading them to answers and solutions, and most importantly, to the Lord, then those good questions are gonna be helpful in somebody else's sanctification, right? In order for you to actually help them get to the root of what's going on so that they can kill whatever sin that they're struggling with, asking good questions is directly related to their sanctification. It's also related to love. You love them so much, you really want to understand their problem so that you can help them solve it. You're not going to be satisfied with cursory answers and overly generalized sweeping solutions, right? You love them so much, you want to get to know to what's the root issue and what's the root cause. And then ultimately, in the scheme of redemptive history, God uses your good questions in order to bring his people all the way home. So don't minimize the importance of A, getting to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, and B, asking good questions in order to do so. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, that you know us, that you've revealed that to us, that, that you know our thoughts, 
You know our actions even before we think and do anything, O Lord. From eternity you have known. And yet in, a, in such an even more gracious way, you gave your only son not only to die for us, but to live for us. And in his life to experience the motley of emotions and circumstances and temptations that we go through so that we know we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We're grateful for that condescension and mercy, O Lord. And we ask that we would reflect that in our relationships with each other. Help us, O God, convict us all here and in the rest of the church family not to be content with shallow relationships, but that we would seek deeply to know one another so that we can more effectively help each other. Give us wisdom also, Lord, with the questions to ask, when to ask them, how to ask them, and that we would use all of this, Almighty King, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
looks good. Green, anyway. Gotta be left. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you, brother. You just read a scripture or something. Mike. Two, two. So they thought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found good. Keep going. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard? Raise it. More. So now come. Please let me give you counsel and provide escape for your life and the life of your son Solomon. Oh, he said, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son shall be king after me? Good? Perfect. 